Welcome to another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, retired broadcaster. Well, Ron, let's, let's set the stage here. We had an election in the United States recently that I don't know that it surprised anybody, did it? it, it I think, well, it proved one thing. It proved that the pollsters don't know what they're talking about yet again. You know, I think there's three implications or three good lessons that have investing implications attached with it that you can take away from this election. And number one is that the polls were indicating a blue wave, and they were wrong again. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you look over the last five years, the elections in Alberta, the federal elections in Canada, provincial elections across the country, and in a lot of these polls, man, these guys weren't even in the ballpark. They were predicting Biden uh, was going to be up 10 to 12 percent in the popular vote, which would have indicated a blue wave right across the country. And here we are with uh, elections tied up in court because they're so bloody close. So the implication here is don't base investment decisions on polling data because it is so far wrong that if you base it on the polling data, which is wrong, your investment conclusions are going to be wrong, and it's going to hurt you as well when your investments don't work out like you think. You know, I read a really interesting piece, uh, I think the day after the election, that somebody pointed out that their philosophy on the whole thing was that people lie to pollsters. <laughs> they just won't, flat out, don't tell them the truth. And I, I don't know how you base that or how you quantify that, but it certainly does poke a lot of holes in the business of pollsters, doesn't it? It certainly does. And there's new polling techniques coming out. I'm not saying that polling is dead. But some of the new polling techniques that come out that look at search activity. So, you know, you can tell if people are searching for Biden or Trump or Democrat or Republican or, or conservative or liberal, that that is going to be a far more accurate way uh, to determine where people's popularity lies and so some of the polling that looked at internet data was far far more accurate than the polling that is done traditionally where they phone people and ask you what your opinion is okay you said there were a couple of implications another one is that uh, if you look at historical data the markets were up during obama's term they were up during trump's term and so there's really no favoritism there right well markets were up 13 percent a year over obama which is very very good um annual numbers for a guy that the right considers a socialist. And, of course, they were up 16% a year under Trump, who everybody considers a dictator. So the implication here is that markets really don't care who's in power. Now, the first year of a presidency, uh, their four-year term, can be a little bit tough, because if you're going to administer tough love, you want to do it as soon as you've been elected as possible so that the voters get a chance to forget all those rotten things you did four years later when you go back to the polls. Okay, now, well, the other thing is there's so many court battles in play right now. We're not 100% certain, but appearances are that the Democrats are going to control the House, but the Republicans are likely to control the Senate, which means, does that mean gridlock again? <laughs> That is the perfect way of describing why markets are rallying, because gridlock means that the Looney Tunes on the right side of the Republican Party and the left-wingers that have the way-out-there economic agenda, 
in the Democratic Party, they're going to be neutralized because both parties are going to have to come and meet in the center if they want any legislation at all to pass. And markets like that, they find governments that can't do anything far more agreeable than markets that can do than than governments that can do a lot. You hear that term bipartisanship mentioned a lot leading up into elections, and and I think back over the previous four years of the Trump presidency, the lack of bipartisanship. But that's a term that I don't know. Will we ever get there again? <laughs> well, you know, they seem to get things done, but only when their backs are at a, uh, against a, the wall. Against yeah. the wall, and and I, I I suspect that's how government is going to be run for the next four years as well. Is that things will only get done when the backs of the country are completely against the wall, and they are forced to compromise and make decisions. And so. And that might not be a, such a bad thing. If you look at the rally in the markets the last, uh, the last while, markets seem to think that uh, a hung Congress and Senate where they can't agree on anything is far better than, than a, the blue wave or a red wave. Okay, well, there's, there's a little bit of a brief synopsis of the election in the United States. The other thing we wanted to do on this episode of Making Money is we often tell you if you have questions, send them to us. And we had a, quite an influx of questions over the last little while, Ron, so we've sort of condensed them down. And I think we have a half a dozen that we want to address in this episode. So let's start with question number one. When taking into consideration that globalism is in retreat and the current global political tensions surrounding the oil and gas sector, boy, and aren't there a lot of those, curiosity about your thoughts on the outlook for the five biggest Canadian oil companies and the ZEO in particular, would you say it's reached bottom yet? Well, the ZEO is, is an ETF that Bank of Montreal has that has oil and gas producers in it. So let's talk about where we are. Well, we've had a bear market in energy for the last six years. If we do get a Biden presidency, they, there's only so much they can do without legislation, but still, there's enough room to maneuver that Biden, for example, can, could, could cancel the Keystone XL pipeline, which he's already said, and, and certainly encourage uh, a lot of green activity, which should be tougher for uh, the energy companies. So the political environment in the United States and Canada doesn't look all that accommodating for energy companies. And so you have to ask yourself, well, where's the big change going to come from? Is there going to be an enormous increase in demand? Well, currently it doesn't look likely because we still have the pandemic. Now, if we get, uh, you know, we get a vaccine or we get some uh, medical breakthroughs that can, that can help treat that so we get to normalize, then demand is going to start going up again. But for the time being, that isn't there. Uh, the upside for oil is if we had a war in the Middle East. And, and frankly, anybody that's watched that scene over the years, you realize that's virtually impossible to predict. The, uh, the elixir of economics and tribalism and, and uh, religion, you pour that into a bottle and shake it up, and it can sp- explode at any time. So if, if we had a serious uh, Middle East problem that took out a lot of production, Yes, oil and gas prices are going to fly. So has it bottomed yet? Well, typically when you don't have money to drill and you're just barely keeping up, sooner or later uh, we're going to see a spike in oil prices. 
simply because the... There's going to be a shortage. There's going to be a shortage. But how soon that's going to be is anybody's guess, especially with the damper that the pandemic has on it. So have we reached bottom yet? Well, that is very, very hard to say. And I just, I just think right now the outlook, there's just a lot better places to look for, for returns than the uh, Canadian oil and gas companies. So you're not saying, you know, divorce yourself from the sector, but maybe minimize your position? Would that be a better piece of advice? Yeah, and certainly I don't think you have to be in any hurry to add here. I think the one shining light might be in the oil and gas sector, the fact that as utilities across North America move from coal to natural gas, I mean, TransAlta just announced the other day that they're going to be uh, quit using coal by 2021 and they're going to use gas instead. Well, that's taking place all across North America. So I, I see more demand for gas, especially as we get more LNG cooling stations where they can cool us down down and make it a liquid, the natural gas, and ship it overseas. So I, I think the only real demand growth that we see over the next couple of years is going to be in natural gas. And even then, um, we've got so much natural gas around for the next couple of years, even that doesn't look all that strong. Okay, question number two, and we've sort of nibbled around the edges on this in previous episodes and discussed it, but your thoughts on the robo-investor platforms, their passive investment strategies, and how safe they are for the long-term investor. This question comes from somebody who's 38 years of age, so hopefully many more years left in, in their investing career. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the robo-investing platforms are good when you're young, because when you're young and you don't have a great deal of capital, uh, you're putting money into your house, you're investing in your education, um, you're, you're investing in, in your, your career. Frankly, you just don't have a lot of disposable income, especially if you're in your 30s and you start to have a family. So I think a robo-platform is very, very good for helping you develop investment, passive investment strategies when you're younger because it forces you to save and it's not very expensive. So most of the money goes to the bottom line. But I think as you get older, I think you want to move beyond the robo-investment platform because you get more sophisticated. Maybe you have property outside the country. You start thinking about how do you want to leave your state. Maybe you get a big inheritance or, or um, you sell your business and you've got lots of cash. All of a sudden, when you've been around for a while and you've accumulated lots of capital, or especially if you've got a big income, You've got tax and estate and, and planning uh, considerations. I don't know how far a robo-investor platform is going to take you. Then you need some hands-on, face-to-face discussions. But I think when you're younger, a robo-platform is great. And as you get more sophisticated, that's when you want to start building in a team of maybe uh, an investment advisor, an accountant, and a lawyer. And those three can really, really help you if you start you start really growing your, your asset base and, and have considerable amount of, of dollars and assets that you've got to deal with. Okay, question three. Uh, this is from someone who took your investment course that you taught at Grant McEwen for years. Uh, he and his sister took it about seven or eight years ago and really enjoyed it. Can you recommend any good books or courses about investing for myself, who I still consider myself to be a beginning investor? Well, I think there's a good book out there. In fact, I interviewed the author of that book, probably about three years ago on uh, when I had a Sunday morning talk show on CFCW. And the 
book was called Investing for Dummies in Canada. So that's a very good basic book that discusses a little bit of tax, uh, a little bit of investment strategy. Uh, it goes through the different vehicles, uh, ETFs and stocks and bonds. It prefers, explains all what, that, what all those things are. Talks about uh, essentially things that you should be doing, how RSPs work, tax-free savings accounts, uh, registered educational savings plans. So there's lots of really good basic uh, information there, and, and that is a, a good foundational book to have in your library. Okay, question four, and uh, this, I guess, happens to people with, you know, not regularity, but it does occur from time to time. Uh, this is about a friend in her early 30s who inherited about a quarter of a million dollars very green in terms of investing. So what advice would you give to somebody in that kind of situation? Because that can be really daunting. You've got this money, you don't know what to do with it. First thing I would do is uh, I would tend to pay off all my short-term debt. So if you've got 15 grand on your credit card that's costing you 20%, start with that. Then if you've got room in a tax-free savings account, maybe start with that. After that, I think I would put the money in a GIC for six months and leave it. Cool off, because typically when you've got that much money in your hands, often you're tempted to just do a lot of things that you regret later. And so by putting your money in the bank, it gives you a chance to cool off emotionally, and it gets you a chance to build some infrastructure, read some books, take some courses, so you're actually knowledgeable and know what to do. Because often you see someone with a quarter million dollars, they walk into the first financial advisor's office they can see, and they get loaded up with all kinds of high-fee products. And once you're in this stuff, it's often tough to get out. So you want to get an education first before you, you start looking around for help, and you'll be much more sophisticated and it'll save you a lot of money. Okay, question number five harkens back to the oil and gas business. Is somebody that talks about their uh, their appreciation of our podcasts, and they're wondering if you have any advice on the Husky Sonovas deal and offer ideas to people that hold shares of each. Well, I'm not in the advisor anymore, so I can't advise them on what they would do. But I'd certainly look at it from what I would do. And on the Husky Sonovas deal. I think what that's going to do is it's going to make both of those companies a lot more efficient and it's going to cut considerably out of their cash costs. So they're going to be able to survive as a combined unit a lot better than they would have been able to survive individually because they'll be able to lower their costs. Now, the general industry, I think if I uh, personally, I'm not sure the industry is going to go anywhere for a while. I think if I was uh, in the industry, I think I'd probably... Uh, as you'll find on the next couple of shows, we're going to be talking about moving up the quality curve. And so if you want to have any exposure to the energy industry at all, I think you want to have the highest quality companies that, that you can find. And so if, I think that uh, with oil and gas, especially right now, if you're at a point where you're getting toward the end of the year, if you've taken some profits on, on things and you have some capital gains, you're going to have to pay, pay some taxes on if these stocks are in an account where you can take a capital loss and write it off against your gains, I think I would do that. Okay, final question, number six. Uh, with the markets, you know, having been rather high of late, 
Uh, this, this is a question about, is it time to short stocks? Can you explain how to do it, the risks, and when to do it? This is, uh, this is like the casino of investing, Ron. <laughs> this is definitely higher risk. And, and a short, shorting stocks is a strategy you do when you think the market's going to go down or an individual security is going to go down. Here's the mechanism. So you go and borrow from your investment firm some stocks. So let's say you have a share of, of X that's $40, and you think X is going down to $10. You borrow the stock, and then you sell it. So $40 comes into your account. Then let's say it does go down to $10. You buy it back at $10. Now, you spend $10. You've taken in $40. The difference is you get to keep $30 a share. Then you give the shares back to the people you borrowed them from. And that's what shorting stocks is. You can short ETFs. There's lots of ways to short the market. So shorting is a technique where you make money when things drop. The risk is what about if things don't drop? They go up. Well, if you buy a stock at $5 and it goes to zero, your risk is $5. But if you short a stock at $5 and it goes to $200 and keeps on going, well, your risk is virtually infinite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you've got a risk that stocks go up. You also have a risk and it's called a, sh a short squeeze, is that anytime you borrow a stock, the owner of that stock has the risk, has the option to take it back from you at any time. And it doesn't happen that often, but if the owner wants to sell that stock and other people want to sell that stock, you might not be able to borrow other stock. And if you can't, you immediately have to buy it back at whatever price it is and give it back to the owner. So a short squeeze can mean sometimes that these shares go very, very high in price, and you're forced to buy back in even when you don't want to. And thirdly is the margin call. So you've, you've uh, had a stock at $40 that you think is going to go to 10 Well, it's gone the other direction. It's now $80. The firm comes to you with what's called a margin call because you're way offside on this thing, and you owe as much money as that you've gotten in. And so the investment firm wants you to start putting up capital. And if you can put up capital, that will hold them off for a time. But if you don't have the capital to put up, the shares are immediately sold at whatever price they're trading at, which could mean you can end up taking big, big losses. So there's risks associated with this, and some of the risks you really can't control. Now, when to do it? Well, the best time to do it is when you find things that are overpriced. And so right now, I mean, the, the question was longer. And a listener asked, well, you know, markets are about where they were just before things melted down in spring. Is this a good time to do this? Well, if you're shorting, you've got to have a stop loss very, very tight. So if, if markets start moving in the other direction, you just don't wait it out and wait it out and wait it out. Get out of Dodge. You're getting out of Dodge. Absolutely. So you want to have very, very tight stop losses. And also, don't become married to an idea. Uh, we've talked about on this show uh, numerous times how Tesla is in nosebleed territory. There is absolutely no economic metric in this galaxy that can justify it being as high as it is. But people love the stock, and they love Elon Musk, and they love the things that are do he's doing, and they think he's going to be 
uh, savior, <laughs> the, the green savior of yeah. the world. Well, guys have shorted that stock, and the stock has gone up four or five times since they shorted it, and they're still hanging mm-hmm. on because they say it's overpriced, and eventually it's going to come down. Well, too often, you run, a, run out of money long before you're right. So if markets move against you, even if you think your analysis is brilliant, leave, hit the road, hostile la the baby. I remember when I first heard about this process, Ron, and it's got to be, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago. And I read up on it and I talked to some folks and I thought, okay, I'm going to try this out. And I went in and the first, the first move I made, I did really well at. Like I hit a home run and I thought, man, this is going to make me a fortune. The next one I got scalped <laughs> and I learned my lesson really quickly and I got the heck out of there. You, you really have to know what you're doing when you start shorting stuff. And the basic direction of the market is up. If you look over the last hundred years, the market goes up roughly two-thirds of the time, and it goes down one-third of the time. So that is why when you're betting on the market, you're better to bet that it's going up than it's going down because there's a far, it's almost twice as the amount of time that it goes up that it goes down. So you've really got to have your timing excellent to make money. Not saying you can't make money shorting, but it is far tougher than just buying and holding and taking the slow escalator ride up that generally markets do. Okay, there you go. Some questions that have come to us over the last little while, and we appreciate your patience in us getting to them. Remember, if you have a question, you can reach us directly through our website, letsmakemoney.ca, or through the cfcw.com portal. show is called Making Money. You can uh, send a question there, and it'll also come to us, and we'd be happy to address them in upcoming episodes. We're back again next week with another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert. I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for joining us.